One of the reasons that we started this series off in, in January, like the new year, is because what we think about God matters. <laughs> what we think about God matters immensely. Who we think God is, is of the utmost value because it's going to direct our lives. It's going to direct the way that we see God. And again, I think I said that last week and it's kind of like, well, yeah, no kidding. But I think it's something we don't necessarily think about. We each have, when we say the word God, when I say, I believe in God, that means something to me. And you know what? We live in a culture where I think we can't necessarily take for granted that when we use the word God, we all agree on what that means. For somebody, it may mean somebody who's ready to, up in the sky, just ready to be angry and to smash them. Another person may, may have in their mind this idea of like, you know, the, the permissive parent that just kind of lets me do whatever I want. And, you know, the whole thing is like, hey, do whatever you want as long as it makes you happy. Right. You may have that idea or like we may have, you know, be somewhere in the middle on that spectrum. But when we use the word God, I don't think we can necessarily assume always the same thing. I think it's important then that we come back to the text that has been given to us, I believe with all my heart, by God. And in the text of Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, we find the place where God reveals his character, where he says who he is. And so, hey, if we want to learn about what God is like, what better place to go than at the place where God reveals to Moses for the very first time, in, a, in, a, in the most full way, who he is. And God doesn't start by saying, you know, I've, you know, I've got brown hair and hazel eyes. And, you know, like, no. Like, God starts to give it by giving character, right? Who he is. We just, we just sang that song. The Lord stood before him and proclaimed. The Lord. And we talked about that idea. Yahweh. The Lord. A God. Yahweh. Elohim. And what that meant, that God is the God of everything. He stands above, whether it's physical or spiritual forces in this world. God stands sovereign above them all. There is nobody greater than God. There is nothing, there is nobody greater than Yahweh Elohim. And then we talked about then this idea that this God, though, he is compassionate and merciful. Yahweh is compassionate and merciful. And then we talked about the idea that God is long of nostrils, right? That God is slow to anger, right? We unpacked that word picture of what it means to be long in the nostrils, to be slow to anger, to be patient, right? That that's who God is at his core. Yes, does God get angry? Yes, but you've got to work at it, right? God is slow to get angry angry. But even there, we talked about how his anger has, you know, we have to read it through the lens of God's compassion and mercy. He desires to be merciful, but yet God is just. He will get rid of all evil in this world. It will happen. God will um, take care of things. And then last week, Luke looked at how God is full of love, faithful love, compassion. I think the word Luke used is loyal love his faithfulness, and God's love. And again, you know what? If, you, if, you listen to, you know, if you've listened to one sermon in that series, that one, that one I think is really important for many of us. The idea that God loves us. That he is slow to get angry. He's compassionate and merciful. Okay? And so we, we looked at, we've, we've gone all the way through verse 6. Now, to be honest, it would be really tempting to just stop there. Say, all right, verse 6, isn't that nice? We're done. 
right? But then you come to Exodus 34, verse 7. And it's probably one that I don't know about you, but maybe it makes you, makes you uncomfortable, right? It's not, the, uh, it's not always the easiest verse to read, right? So we read this nice verse, verse 6. We like verse 6. God is full of compassion and mercy. He's slow to anger. He's filled with unfailing loyal love and faithfulness. And then we start verse 7. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. That's nice. That's really nice. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Wonderful. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. And we go, oh, hold on, okay. Right? I mean, that's a hard one. That's a difficult one. And so I think when we come to this, like we can have this temptation to just kind of go, maybe we just want to talk about that part. We'll just kind of leave that one be. We'll just focus on the, the, the attributes that I like. Okay? And, and here's what I was thinking about. There was a guy in, in American history, a famous man by the name of Thomas Jefferson, and he did something pretty extreme, right? So he read the Bible. He was a deist. He wasn't a Christian. He was a deist. In other words, he believed there was a God who kind of set the top spinning and then kind of stood back and said, whatever happens, happens, right? And so when he went to the Bible, he liked the person of Jesus. Like, that sounds really nice, except that he felt like he, he could decide what Jesus actually said and didn't say and what God actually said and didn't say. And so he actually just took out a pair of scissors and went chopping in his Bible. You can actually, on Amazon, wouldn't recommend it, but you can buy the Thomas Jefferson Bible. It's like 80 pages, something like that. You know, it's not long, right? Because he cut out most of it, because he didn't like it. He kept the bits that he liked and got rid of the stuff he doesn't like. And you go, that's extreme. Who would do that? I think we do. There's a part of us that's all a little bit like Thomas Jefferson, right? There are things that God reveals about himself that can make us uncomfortable. And so we kind of just go, we'll keep that one in a closet and we'll, you know, we'll talk about this stuff. Okay, and so I think each one of us has to make a choice when we come to these passages that say, what are we going to do? What do we want? What kind of God do we want? Do we want a God that's more a figment of our imagination, right? Where he kind of just fits into with what we already agree with? Or do we want to worship the one true and living God who reveals himself in Exodus 34, 6, and 7? And I know for me, that actually I became much more okay with going through verse 7 and much more excited about it because I went, you know what? This is the God that I worship. And I want to know him. And I want to know about him. I want to follow the one true God revealed in Scripture. And so we're going to do our best to handle verse 7 in a way that honors that. Okay, we're not going to try and skirt around it. We're not going to try and justify it. We're not going to cut it out of our Bible and pretend it's not there. We're going to walk through it. All right, so verse 7. And what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through it literally chunk by chunk by chunk. All right? So Exodus 34, verse 7, starts off by saying, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. Now, that sounds an awful lot like what we talked about last week. And for good reason. And you know, if you remember back to the very, uh, well, I guess the second week when I spoke, I said, in the Bible, when we find something twice, uh, it's really important, right? If they, wanted to re if they wanted to make emphasis on something, they said it twice, right? In the Hebrew, they didn't underline, they didn't bold the font, they didn't put exclamation points at the end, they just repeated it again. And here again, we find God saying that he lavishes unfailing love, same word, chesed, that Luke unpacked last week. 
I don't really have time to unpack it this week. So go listen to last week's sermon. And Luke unpacked it really well. The idea of the word chesed. This idea of unfailing, committed, covenantal, loyal, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And here God repeats it. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. That's a lot of generations. Hyperbole. My love keeps going. It doesn't end. Okay? And so this is really important. As we read verse 7, we have to read the part about visiting iniquity, right? About um, the, the idea of, of laying the sins of the parents. We have to read that part through the lens of God keeping love and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. We can't ignore verse 6 now when we come to verse 7. So whatever God says in verse 7 about himself is true, but it's true in the context of verse 6 as well. Okay, so we have to keep that in mind as we unpack it. God is ready and wanting to forgive. He is compassionate and merciful. Yet, he will not let injustice and evil go unpunished. Okay, so here's a couple of things. Let's, let's go back to I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. There it is. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. The word there for lavish, that the, that the New Living Translation uses lavish. If you're using another translation, it may say keeping. Uh, the English Standard Version, I believe the NIV, also uses the word um, keeping or preserving or guarding or protecting. That's the idea here and behind the Hebrew. It's, it's nasar. It's this idea of, of preserving, guarding, protecting. And I love this picture then, that God nasars, he protects, he guards, and he gives his unfailing love to thousands. God protects his covenant. He doesn't keep, he doesn't just keep his end of the deal. He does more than that. He protects it. He keeps it. He lavishes it. Right? And we see that all over the story of the Bible. Human beings rebel, but God remains faithful, loving to the people who run away. And like I said, we're not going to go too far into that. That's, that's about all we're going to say on that chunk. Because like I said, you can go back last week and listen to a full sermon on the idea of, of chesed. But as we move forward, it says that, he, that God forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. God forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Now, this is kind of what's fun. Uh, the word for forgive there is nasah. So we have nasar and nasah. So nasah literally means to lift up or to carry or to take away. So it's the idea of like grabbing something and carrying it on your shoulders. This is going to become important when we get to the part about Jesus, right? Uh, okay, but think of that. That's literally what the word means. I love it. It's like such a powerful word picture because again, it points us forward to the end of the sermon or to, you know, to the next testament of the Bible. It points us forward to Jesus. Nassah. God is ready and willing and looking to Nassah, to forgive, to lift up, to carry, to take away our iniquity, rebellion, and sin. All right? 
Now what we're gonna do, really quickly, is we're gonna do a word study on three words. All right, and I'm gonna try and do this like in like five minutes or less, okay? First word is iniquity. That word in the Hebrew is avon, okay? Avon. And in, when you get to the Greek, it becomes anomia, for all of you who are interested in that sort of thing. But it literally means guilt or sin. It literally means, it's, sorry, it's translated either iniquity, sometimes it's translated guilt, sometimes it's translated sin, okay? Um, but literally what the word means is to bend out of shape, to take something and to bend it out of shape, right? I don't know if you ever did this as a kid or maybe one of your children have done this. They take a spoon and they just kind of bend it out of shape, right? You make it into a U, right? That's the idea, okay? It's taking something that's supposed to be one way and then bending it into something else, to bend it out of shape. It's crooked behavior often. It's described in the Bible as crooked behavior. It's described as um, in, in the context of, of crooked consequences, like broken relationships, when relationships, again, are bent out of shape. Or you think about it, maybe, again, we're talking about word pictures a couple weeks ago, right? Long in the nostrils or whatever, but like when somebody is bent out of shape, you know, they're, they're upset. I remember it was never nice when I would hear that my dad is bent out of shape, right? You know, like it, he was upset about something, right? So it's this idea of, of broken relationships. Sometimes it's revenge. Sometimes it's retaliation. It's, it's taking the way the world is supposed to be and bending it out of shape. That's a bone, all right? So that is iniquity. When you read iniquity, that's what you need to think about. It's the idea of taking something, bending it out of shape, all right? Taking it the way it was supposed to be and twisting it, changing it. All right, the next one is pasha, and that is rebellion, translated rebellion. Sometimes it's translated transgression. Sometimes it's translated trespass, okay? But here it's translated as, as rebellion. Um, but pasha, and when you get to the, the Greek, it becomes paraptoma. Um, but it carries with it this idea of violating, uh, of violating a relationship of trust, okay? And maybe you have been, uh, been pashad against, right? You know what that feels like. You know what that's like, right? And so the Bible describes that as rebellion, and it says that, the human, that human beings have pashad against God, that we have rebelled. We have violated a relationship of trust with others. So here's a place to think about it. Romans chapter 5, Paul is talking about, he's comparing Jesus and Adam, and about how Adam sinned, but Jesus has come and reversed that, right? That Jesus has reversed the curse. And the word that Paul uses there is paraptoma. So he talks about how, he, he describes how Adam's sin was paraptoma. Adam's sin was rebellion. And when you read the story, when you go all the way back to Genesis 3, what happens? They choose not to trust God. Adam and Eve choose to say, God, I know you said, but this talking snake over here said something else, right? You know, so they're like, and you know, they have, the, the fruit looks good. It's, they violate the relationship between them and God. And the, the thing that Paul is doing there is saying, actually, Jesus comes to set that relationship right. Um, but the Adam, Adam's sin was paraptoma. It was pasha. It was rebellion. Okay, and the final way is actually probably the, uh, is, is, uh, the way it's called hamartia in the Greek or chata um, in, in the Hebrew. And what it means is literally missing the mark. It's always translated sin. That's the way it is. Like it's always, it ends up being translated sin. We find it a lot in our Bible, but it's the idea of missing the mark. 
So like the way you have to think of it is like target shooting, right? You've got a bow and arrow, you're out like target shooting, right? It's like a bullseye, okay? And you are to hit a bullseye. And if you don't, you know, or if you're playing darts, you know, you're at the pub, you're playing darts and you don't get the center, right? You miss the mark. Anything but the bullseye is missing the mark. Even if it's close, still miss the mark, right? So it's this idea that there is a way to live. And when we go our own way, when we live in rebellion against God, when we live uh, out of bent, out of shape <laughs> from the way we were supposed to do, we miss the mark. But what's the mark that we miss? It's true humanness. That's what the Bible describes as missing the mark. True humanness. Being what you were always created to be. Going your own way. Rebelling against God. God says live this way and you say, no thank you. I'm going to miss the mark. Right? I'm not going to live that way. It's, so sin in this in this way of looking at it, is dehumanizing. And just brief um, here, just a side note, this is free. Sin is dehumanizing. We tend to think that sin makes me more of myself. When I go and do what I want, when I decide what's right for me, when I decide what's best for me, I'm actually becoming more of my true self. But the Bible actually says, no, that's not the way it works. Actually, when you sin, you're becoming less and less human. That actually, true humanness is found in following Jesus as the one true and living God. And when you do that, you find your created purpose, you find who you were always meant to be. So there you go. Avon, avon pasha, chata. There we're done. We've done our three word studies. Here's why it's important. What God is saying here, he's not just repeating himself three times for the sake of hearing his own voice. What he does is he says, think of all the possible sins that you can imagine. Think of rebellion. Think of ruining relationships. Think of crooked behavior, injustice, exploitation. Think of suffering. Think of missing the mark. Anything that you could possibly do, I can forgive it. I can forgive it. This is a beautiful truth that God is revealing. You are never too far away from God. Never. We're never too far away from God. God forgives all kinds of sin. Or as I think I have on the slide there, God forgives sins of all type. All right? You have not committed a sin that God cannot forgive, that God doesn't want to forgive, that God doesn't desire to forgive. Because as we've read in verse 6, right, God is compassionate and merciful. God wants, he desires to be merciful. It's who he is. And as we move on to the next one, all right, we're getting closer to uh, the second half of verse 7 here. I do not excuse the guilty. I do not excuse the guilty. What does he mean by that? Because we've just read that like, he forgives sin of all kinds, which would make us guilty, right? So what does that mean? Why does he say that? I think what we find is this. Yahweh, God, is forgiving by nature. That's who he is. That's who he's revealed himself as, right? Verse 6 is full of that idea. He's revealed himself as forgiving. Not only has he said he's forgiving, we've already seen God forgiving the people of Israel for their mistakes, right? He doesn't, you know, when, when they're worshiping a, you know, a golden calf, things like that, God doesn't destroy them, right? He forgives them. Now, it's not to say there isn't any discipline that goes on there, but he forgives them, right? He says, okay, I'm, I relent. I will not destroy you. I will forgive. 
right? God looks to be merciful and to forgive. He's forgiving by nature, but he is also just. And those two things, it's not an either or, it's something as Christians we have to hold in tension about God. He is both merciful and ready to forgive, but he is also just. And here's where I think it helps, it helps me at least to hold this tension, is to realize that there are people in this world who don't want to be forgiven. For whatever reason, they don't want to be forgiven. God is not going to just let the guilty off the hook. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. When you think about the amount of evil that is perpetrated on a consistent basis in our world, you know, many of us live in a little bit of a bubble, and so it seems kind of offensive that God would punish the guilty. But if you're on the other end of that, if you live in a place where, where there is constant threat against your life for what you believe or the color of your skin or who you are, this is good news that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. That God will set things right. Justice will be done. And that should be an amen, not an oh no. I hope it's not an oh no for us. That should be an amen. Let it be, God. Yes, true. Our hearts should beat for justice because God's heart beats for justice. But there are people who don't want forgiveness, and some of them are pretty decent people. They just either, A, don't feel like they need it. I'm a pretty good person. I try pretty hard, so, you know, hey, who cares? I'm not really sinful anyway. What is sin? You know? And in that regard, I can have some compassion on those people. You know, they kind of just go, well, you know, hey, I try really hard. I don't agree. You know, like, I don't know. What's sin? You know, whatever. But at the same time, they're not exactly hungering for forgiveness. Like, so there are those from that end who, who don't really care um, and don't really want forgiveness. But on the other end of that spectrum, there are those who know they are sinful and just don't care. Right? <laughs> there are those people in the world, right, that kind of go like, yep, I do terrible things. Okay. <laughs> you know, so what? <laughs> and, and maybe you've known some of those people. It's, they're not great friends, right? You know, like, but God's end goal and this is the thing I think is important to remember. His end goal is a world without evil. Okay, God's end goal is a world without evil. And so what I think we find in this passage is we read, I do not excuse the guilty, is that God's judgment is not about revenge. Remember, slow to anger. God is not vengeful. God looks to be merciful. He wants to be merciful. It's not about revenge. God isn't flying off the handle. God isn't losing his cool. It's about renewal. Right? Because God promises a new creation where there is no more crying and tears and death and sin. All of that is gone. Which means God's going to have to judge the evil in this world. And so his judgment is not about revenge. It's about renewal. I love this quote by, there's a singer by the name of Andrew Peterson. And I love this quote by him. He says, God is not making all new things, but he is making all things new. Right? It's about renewal. God wants to renew, to restore his creation back to the way he always intended it to be. And that's going to mean then that he cannot excuse the guilty. And so now, here we go. We find ourselves at the second half of verse 7. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children, to the third and fourth generations. 
Now, since we're doing Hebrew word studies, there you go. The word for visiting or I lay or placing or counting, depending on your translation, is the word pakad. And that's what it means. Placing, counting, visiting, laying. <laughs> and we go, what, is, what does that mean? Now, I said earlier, it's really important that we take that within the context of verse 6 and the first half of verse 7, right? The character of God, who he is. And so I think, first off, it doesn't mean what it sounds like at first read. I mean, if we're looking at the character of God, it doesn't mean that if your granny cheats at bingo, God's going to punish you, right? That's not what it means. Because you could take it that way, right? You could say, well, oh man, I'm in trouble, you know? Like, maybe you're, maybe you're, I'm sure your granny was very honest in bingo. Okay, I'm just saying. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, or, or even there, like, let's take a more, more serious thing. My, my, uh, I'm, this is not, this is not biographical. I'm just making up. <laughs> my, my grandfather spent time in prison for murder. Will I be punished for that? Neither of my grandpas went to prison for murder. I'm just, again, <laughs> hypothetical here. But does that mean I'm going to be, like, God's going to punish me for that? Well, when we come to Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses doesn't seem to think so. Because in Deuteronomy 24, Moses says, Parents must not be put to death for the sins of their children, thank goodness, nor children for the sins of their parents. And all the children said, thank goodness. Um, Those deserving to die must be put to death for their own crimes. So it doesn't seem like Moses would take it that way. So what does it mean? This is where I think there's a, one of my favorite commentators, one of my favorite guys, like I, I love to read commentaries, like that's, you know, if I had glasses with tape in the middle, I would push them up right now. Um, I enjoy, yes, thank you, Chrissy. She <laughs> vicariously pushed up her glasses for me. Um, no, like, I, lo- I enjoy reading commentaries. The guy Christopher Wright, he's an Irish guy, um, actually, and, and he's one of my favorite, uh, my favorite commentators to, to read. And I think he's really helpful on this. Um, he says this, Instead of describing God as tenaciously vindictive, this passage points out the corporate nature of sin. All right, the corporate nature of sin. So let's just take a look at that for a moment. I think that means for us that we're not going to be punished for our parents' sin or our grandparents' sin or even our great-grandparents' sin. But I think it does mean then three things. The first thing is this. Sin has consequences. Parents and a parent's sin has consequences for their children's future. That's the hard reality. That's one of the scary things. If you don't have kids, like you'll figure this out someday. It's one of the scary things about being a parent where you're like, oh no. The things that I do have a knock-on effect for my kids. Like there's consequences for the things that I do. The things that they see me doing. The things, you know, I hear them say the things that I say. You know, even the things I don't want them saying. You know, the things that I say that I'm like, hmm. you know, like, you know, there, you know, there are certain things where you're like, you know, all of a sudden you start to realize that the things that I do have effects on my kids. And even there, as you get older, one of the things that you start to notice is, I say some of the same things as my dad. Yeah, like, oh, I said I would never be like that. I would never be this person. You know, like, like one of the things just, uh, my dad talks a lot. My dad talks a whole lot. And someday, probably, you know, if you're here at the church long enough, you'll meet him and you'll know. You know, you'll go, oh, that's where Stephen gets it. <laughs> I, it used to drive me nuts. 
You know, we'd be like at, at like the shopping, like, you know, we'd be in like a, a, a line at the till, you know, and my dad's like striking up a conversation with the guy behind the till and we're all like, Dad, please, there's like people behind us. There's like, you know, like, stop it. You know, and like, you know, like if you've been in the church very long, I, I talk a lot. Thanks, Dad. You know, like, so the first thing is this. Parents' sin has consequences for their children's future. And sin is always relational. And it gets passed down. All right, let's, let's kind of unpack that for a second a little more. You know, I, I talked about, you know, like my dad talking a lot and me talking a lot. But let's, let's take a look at an actual serious example. There was a kid I went to school with who, um, when we were like 10, his, uh, his family... The police, I mean, made, uh, made, made state news because there was an enormous drug bust at their house. They were making and selling methamphetamines. Their 10-year-old son wasn't doing that. And when dad went to jail, you better believe that had an effect on him. Kids are ruthless and mean. And when he went to school, he was punished daily for his father's sins. And then when we got a little bit older and his mother died of drug-related uh, you know, health problems, he was punished again. That poor guy's life has been defined by the sins of his parents. It's like, it's one of those like, you know, I don't know any other way to say it. I guess really that's it. Our sins have an effect on our kids. You know what? I don't know what your family of, or, of origin was like. Maybe you had really good parents and you've been blessed in many ways. See that as a blessing. Thank God. Praise God for that. And maybe you're still trying to work out issues from your upbringing. And you know all too well. You know, I know plenty of people who grew up missing a parent. It has an effect. It doesn't mean that they didn't turn out to be wonderful people. Most of them I know turned out to be great people. It just means that there's, you know, it's going to affect, like, hey, when somebody goes to be a parent someday, if you didn't have a mom or you didn't have a dad or, you know, like, or somebody filling those roles for you, you're missing something, right? And so it's one of those things. It, the way we grow up, our parents, it affects our entire lives. And we know this. Like I said, sin is always relational. It gets passed down. So those are the first two things. But let me just say this on, on that in a more, on a more positive note. Your kids are watching you, okay? But this can be a positive thing. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. Do you know Deuteronomy chapter 6 puts this in a really positive light and says, hey, parents, take the initiative. Teach your kids about what God is like. Do it at home. Do it when you go and meet as a corporate group. Teach your kids the Bible. It, you know, like, it's said in a very positive way. Go read Deuteronomy 6. Like, hey, look, there's an opposite side to this. Right? But parent, it's not just parents. People in this church, all of you, the kids upstairs, the kids who are still in this room, they're watching you. They're watching everything you do. They're watching who you are. And they're looking up to you. When they want to know what Jesus is like, they're going to read the Bible, but they're also going to look at you. 
And that's a that should be a positive thing. That shouldn't be a negative condoning thing, right? Condemning thing, right? That should be a positive thing. It goes, that's great. Okay, I need to I need to step up to these expectations. The greatest gift that we can give our kids is consistently, not just consistently talking about Jesus, but consistently following Jesus. But when we fail, when we and I mean when, I don't mean if we fail, I mean when we fail, one of the things that I think is deeply important is that we repent to our children. We seek forgiveness. We explain to them, this is not right. This is not the way. We don't excuse ourselves. We don't make excuses. We don't make, you know, oh, well, you know, I was just tired, and so I lost my... No, own it. Let your kids know that you are a sinner who is saved by grace and who is coming to follow Jesus more and more. Right? So let's not hide from our children. Let's repent to our children and lead them intentionally. All right, let's let this be a positive thing rather than the warning that says the sins of the, of the father or the sins of the parents will be passed down. Finally, this. God will continue to punish sin until it's gone. God will continue to punish sin until it's gone. And I think that's um, one of the important things that we see in this passage. Okay, you know what? Your granny cheated at bingo. You're not going to get punished necessarily unless like your family was like banned forever from the bingo hall, right? Like you're not going to get punished forever for that, right? God's not going to punish you for that. But if you cheat at bingo, you can't go, well, my grandma was punished for that, so I shouldn't be, right? You're going to face the consequences for your own actions. And, and sin, because it tends to be passed down from generation to generation, often our kids... And the young people will deal with the same sins and struggles that we have. But it doesn't mean that they get off the hook for it. Any more than you get off the hook for it, or your parents or your grandparents got off the hook for it. If you had a parent that was, say, addicted to pornography, that doesn't excuse your addiction. There may be reasons for it. You may be able to go, you know what? I, I, I grew up in a home where, you know, like, I had, sure, sure. There's mitigating factors, there's things like that. But it doesn't excuse your addiction. And so there are still consequences. But So one of the things I think that we see here, overall as we look at, at the end of verse 7 here, or 6 and 7 in general, is that God is forgiving, but sin is not. There are consequences for our sins. All right, and I realize this is, uh, we've gotten fairly heavy here. All right, Numbers chapter 14 tells a story about the Israelites, okay? And we'll, we'll I'll try and summarize it here a little bit, right? They're getting ready to go into the promised land. So this is, this is in the future from what's happening now, right? They're getting ready to go into the promised land. God's going to give them the promised land. They send how many spies? Twelve? Twelve men with the spy on Canaan. Two were good. Yeah, so ten were bad. Two were good. There's a song. Sorry, I had my head. Um, Right? They go to spy on Canaan. And when the spies come back, 10 of them say, forget it, guys. Let's go back to Egypt. <laughs> it ain't happening. All right? Pack your bags. We're, we're going to kill Moses. We're going to kill Aaron. We're going we're gonna to appoint some new people. We're going to go back, and we're going to beg to be slaves again in Egypt. That's their plan. And, uh, and God gets very, very angry. And he's like, you don't trust me. You don't trust me. 
You have seen me do countless miracles for you. You have seen me literally rescue you from Egypt, and yet you don't trust me. And God kind of says, you know what, Moses? Maybe I'm just going to start over. I'm done. Do you want to be a great nation? You know, do you want to have like your descendants? You know, you know what? We're going to get rid of them. We're going to start fresh with you, buddy. And Moses, Moses begs the people to trust God. They don't. God says he's going to destroy them. And what does Moses do? He asks God for mercy. Again, because remember, before Exodus 34, when you go back, the people, God had, already, God had already said, you know what, maybe I'm done with them. And Moses said, listen, God, please don't do this. Remember who you are. Like, you know, don't, don't, right? So here we have, again, Moses is begging for them. And he kind of just says like, hey, God, remember, what will the Egyptians think? But then he goes on to say, please, Lord, Prove that your power is as great as you have claimed. For you said, the Lord is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. But he does not excuse the guilty. He lays the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Do you see what he's doing? He's quoting Exodus 34, 6 and 7 back to God and saying, remember who you are. You are merciful. Now, he quotes verse 7, too. He doesn't leave that out, right? He, he quotes the whole thing. And he says, In keeping with your magnificent, unfailing love, please pardon the sins of this people, just as you have forgiven them ever since they left Egypt. And God says, Now I'm going to destroy them. No. <laughs> verse 20 says, Then the Lord said, I will pardon them as you have requested. But as surely as I live, and as surely as the earth is filled with the Lord's glory, not one of these people will ever enter the land. Now, remember there were two spies that were like, hey, we can do this. Do you know what their kids had to do? Wander in the desert for 40 years. There were consequences even for them. There were consequences for all the people. Do you know what? The kids there, they didn't have any say in this. But guess who else had to wander in the desert for 40 years? There were consequences. And the people who sinned didn't get to go into the promised land. You know what? The younger kids, though, God still showed mercy. They still got to go into the promised land. They got, God said, hey, this isn't your fault. You can go. But your parents aren't. I forgive them, but I'm gonna, they're going to face the consequences for their rebellion. All right? So I think it's one of those where we see God is forgiving, but sin is not. Our sin is unforgiving and merciless merciless. And we need to take our sin more seriously. We don't take our sin serious enough. We tend, especially with our own sin, to kind of give it a wink. Other people's sin, we take a lot more seriously. You know, how dare you? Um, but we need to take sin seriously in our own lives and in the lives of others. Sin has consequences, and we can end up missing out on blessing. It doesn't mean we miss out on salvation. Okay, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that we can end up missing out on blessing in this life because of our sin. And we've probably, again, all faced that to one degree or another. We've lived long enough that we've had people treat us badly. We've treated others badly. Whatever. We've seen the deterioration of relationships. We've seen you know, lack of trust and having to build up. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we've faced consequences for. But what we see then is that God gives his love to thousands and his punishment to the third and fourth. And this is, I think, important. 
It's important. God lavishes his love going on and on and on and on and on. You're not going to break that cycle. God's going to keep showing his love. But the punishing sin to the third and the fourth, like that's, there's an end. Like that's, that says like, look, this is like, it's possible to break the cycle. It's possible to break the cycle. Yahweh is just, but he's also forgiving. He can't help but show mercy. There it is. It's who he is. And we see, and this is where we're finishing up here, we see God's mercy most fully in Jesus. We see God's mercy most fully in Jesus. Jesus, literally, going back to that word we talked about in the beginning, the saw, took on it, carried, lifted up our sin. Jesus literally nasad our sin when he carried the cross. And the reality for you and me then is that when we repent, and that word is naham, so it's kind of fun, like naham and nasah. Um, and sorry, I just, just a side note, I couldn't help but see it. So when you, when you kind of take the Hebrew and you spell it into nasah, it just spells NASA, like the space agency. And I'm sorry, it's just always in my head. Um, that has nothing to do with the sermon other than I just looked at it on my page and it says NASA. Um, <laughs> but when we naham, when we repent, right? God nasas. He forgives. When we come to him and we say, I'm, I have sinned. I have fallen short of the glory of God. God says, look, I've already, I've already taken care of it. I'm carrying it, man. I'm carrying it. Romans chapter 6, Paul says this. St. Paul says in Romans 6, 23. Maybe you've heard this. It's a famous passage. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. This is important, I think, to see. The wages of sin. In other words, you work for it, right? Sin is something you work at doing. It comes easy, but you work for it, right? The wages of sin is death. You've got to earn it, and we all have. But the free gift of God is eternal life. You can't work for it. Once you receive it, you can show your gratitude by living for Jesus and becoming the people that he always created you to be, but you can't earn it. It's a free gift. That's exactly what Paul says. You earn death, but God gives you freely the gift of eternal life, life with him. And Jesus, through his death, carries our sin and its eternal consequences, and he bears them for us. So what we find is God choosing in Christ, God choosing to forgive to be merciful, to be compassionate, to be slow to anger, to be abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We find it fully revealed to us in Jesus. God chooses to forgive rather than to punish, to actively do something about our sin rather than to let us experience the ultimate consequence, which is separation from him. It's not being with him. Right? The ultimate consequence is not like, oh, I don't get to experience streets of gold. The ultimate consequence is I don't get to spend eternity with Jesus. Because that's the greatest gift we could ever receive, is spending eternity with Jesus, living out our fully human, being fully human, no sin, no death, no tears, no crying, no, none of that. Right? With Jesus. And so when we come to Jesus, when we identify with him, we come to Jesus when we say, look, I, Naham, I repent. 
we receive God's forgiveness, his Messiah. And Paul says then in Romans 6.10 that when we do that, sin loses its power. He says when we, he died, Jesus, when Jesus died, he died once to break the power of sin, but now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. Jesus, through him, sin loses its power. Doesn't mean we don't still sin, but it begins to lose its power when we see the beauty and the joy that comes with knowing Christ. And through the power of the Spirit, then, new life becomes possible. And this is really important because we've talked a lot about the consequences and the damage that sin does. And maybe, maybe that seems really condemning. That feels really condemning to you. Maybe you're like, oh my goodness. I've, like, I've ruined my life. I've ruined other people's lives. I've done all this kind of stuff. You know, like, and it's one thing to say, hey, someday all of it's going to be gone. You won't have to deal with it. Or ever. But what about right now? What do I do? And this is where I think new life is possible. We can begin to break free from sin, even generational sin. And it's not by trying really hard and doing our best. It's by relying and trusting in the Spirit and living from the vine. You see, so often I think we try and live into the vine. Like, I've got to do these things, do these things, do these things. It's like, no, we live from the vine. It's the power of the Spirit that gives us the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we get to cooperate with that, to partner with that, with, with Christ in that, to partner with the Spirit in becoming more like Jesus. And we're going to talk about that a lot in the next, you know, like in the season of Lent, like the next series. We're going to talk about like a way of life that leads to life, developing a way of life that leads to life. All right? That's, that's like literally like the very next series. It's like we thought about it. Um, we can break free from sin, even generational sin. And you know what? All the damage that maybe you have done in your life, God can repair that. God can repair the damage we have done. You know, I think to, um, Luke mentioned this the, uh, last week um, with Abraham and Sarah, right? Sarah laughs at the idea that she could become pregnant because she's too old. And the the angel of the Lord says, is anything too great for God? I think that's true for our lives as well. Sometimes we just think like, it's too far, it's too hard, it's too much, you know, I've done too much, I've, you know, or people have done too much to me, or I'm just too broken, or the church is too broken, or the people I know are too broken. Is anything too great for God? And obviously that's a rhetorical question where the answer is no. <laughs> no, it's not. Sarah got pregnant and had a baby, right? God can repair the damage that we have done. And God can even take our past failures and bring good out of them. That's Romans 8, 28, right? That, quote, that tends to get misused and mis misappropriated all over. But it says, right, that God works all things together for good according to those who love him. I'm, I'm misquoting it anyway. God works all things for good according to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? That God, for us who follow Jesus, God can take even the bad things that have happened to us that are truly awful and terrible or the terrible things that we have done. And it is possible that God can bring good out of them. That's how sovereign God is. He can bring good even out of the messes and the disasters that have happened to us and from us. And we are then promised eternity with him in a world free from sin. The very last thing I want to point out is verse 8. Okay? Verse 8 of Exodus chapter 34. So after God reveals his name, 
This is what Moses does. Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshiped. Exodus 34, 6 to 7, guys, is great news. It's great news. The gods that Moses was used to hearing about were vindictive and nasty and mean. And they did look to step on you. But when God reveals himself to Moses, he reveals himself as compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, ready to forgive. And Moses threw himself to the ground and worshiped. Jesus died for the forgiveness of sin and to bring us into covenant relationship with him. The same God of Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is most fully shown to us in Jesus. And that is, we worship him and we're going to. I hope like Moses over the next you know, a few minutes as we take communion and we remember what Jesus has done for us, we remember the sacrifice that he made for you and for me, that he carried our iniquity and our rebellion and our sin, it leads us to worship. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion and then Tiffany's going to come up and we're going to sing some more songs.